Hey everyone, welcome to the Journeyman Fire Podcast. I'm your host today, Grant Schwalbe. Joining me today is Chief Dave McGrail from Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Chief. How you doing? I'm doing great, Grant. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of this. I'm flattered and honored that you would ask me to do this. I'm very excited about it. Thank you. Absolutely. You've been uh, a big help to me in my fire service career and a mentor and really helped shape what we've done down in South Florida for our high-rise stuff. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been in the fire service and how you got your start? Well, I'm uh, in my 39th year in the fire service. Um, my dad was on the job and uh, that's probably what enhanced my interest in it. I always, I always tell uh, friends and firefighters that I associate with that um, I can't remember a time in my life uh, ever from when I was just a, a very young kid that uh, I wanted to do something other than being a firefighter. I always wanted to be a firefighter like my dad. And, and certainly as I started to grow up and uh, so forth, learn a little bit more about it, it just solidified it for me that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, my dad did 42 years on the DFD and uh, I watched him as I grew up. He worked on the DFD from 55 to 97. So there was a period of time there for 10 years where I got to work with him, but uh, that's what I saw growing up. And, and I uh, have always been in love with wanting to be a firefighter. And I was blessed that I got the opportunity to, to be a firefighter. I worked for, um, <clears throat> I worked for the Aurora Fire Department for five years while I was trying to get on Denver. That's an excellent organization, which basically is the, the city that's the Eastern border of Denver. And so I got my start out there while I was testing for Denver. And, and I remember standing in line at the old Kurgan Hall Convention Center in Denver, stood in line for uh, about two hours to get into the building. And there was 8,000 people in the building. And I thought, geez, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I didn't think that I really had a huge chance of getting on the DFD, but uh, uh, a lot of luck and a fair amount of divine intervention. I got on the DFD and I've been on the DFD now uh, since 1987. Like I said, I'm in my 39th year in the fire service. I, I still love our profession, Grant, and still very passionate about it. And once again, just feel very fortunate. You've, you've heard that saying that if you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. And I'm one of those people that's been fortunate to, to have that. And, and I'm still enjoying it and so forth. So, yeah, that's a little bit of a background. And, and on our job, uh, the assistant chief position is would be similar to a battalion chief in most organizations. We call them districts rather than battalions. But I'm out in a district and uh, working shifts and going to fires and emergencies with some real terrific guys. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just a great, it, it's, it's a fantastic profession. I'm, I'm very blessed. As you went up through Denver, what roles did you have? I, uh, let's see here, on, on Denver, you go through uh, four to five houses on probation. And my fire houses on probation were uh, uh, engine 21, uh, engine 12, truck eight, um, engine nine, and tower one were my companies on probation. After probation, I got a permanent spot on truck eight. And truck eight is... Uh, it's an inner city truck company in an area called Capitol Hill. Um, it's the most densely populated area of this part of the world, state of Colorado, certainly the city of Denver, but a lot of multiple dwelling type buildings and a fair amount of fires and emergencies there. But worked as a firefighter on truck eight um, and then transferred over and worked as a firefighter on rescue one on our job. At the time, our job had one heavy rescue company. Uh, it's expanded 
in uh, 2018, we got a second rescue company opened up, so there's two heavy rescues in the city now, but I worked as a firefighter in Rescue One, was promoted to lieutenant out of there, and uh, went to a, we call it a rover position, but you're filling in for vacations and Kelly days, but I was in the downtown district, District 2, which includes the special operation companies. I uh, got promoted to captain. Um, I did some time at our training division, uh, was a captain on engine three, and then went back to rescue one as a captain on rescue one. And then uh, got promoted to assistant chief and did some uh, time roving around, filling in on Kelly days and vacations. And um, worked in several different districts as an assistant chief, but principally uh, downtown in district two. And now I'm in district three, which is south and southeast Denver, as I told you in the pre-show it's closer to home and that sort of thing but uh yeah that's kind of how my career has lined out and so forth and uh i feel very blessed i had some very good assignments on what i consider very good companies and and busy companies that uh, get a lot of runs and a fair amount of work so uh, i've been very lucky what what did you find you gravitated towards the most rescue truck engine what was your favorite you know, I I probably I was I was I, I think I was fairly blessed because I, I other than on probation I didn't even work on an engine company um, as a new firefighter. My my assignments once again were truck eight and then rescue one, and so I think it, I I think I got a real good solid foundation about that at the beginning. As time went on, and uh, you and I both uh, have that association with the late Andy Fredericks and and um, uh, um, started working more on engine companies. I think I developed more of a passion for the engine company stuff, things I learned from Andy, uh, things I've learned from guys like you, and just the, that kind of that, uh, um, I, I guess sometimes the engine company can, can look uh, somewhat, um, I guess routine, locate, confine, extinguish, you know, and, and the truck company stuff is a little bit more maybe glamorous, a little bit more independent contracting and making rescues and so forth. But uh, as I grew up in the fire service and learning stuff from Andy and having the opportunity to teach with Andy, uh, realized the, the importance and was being overlooked, the importance of the engine company stuff, um, weapons selection, flows, different things like that. So probably most people would describe me more as an engine company type guy. But ultimately, I'm blessed to be on a fire department that has a very good engine truck ratio, um, essentially two to one engine truck ratio on our job. And uh, I'm, I'm blessed to be a district chief on a department where the trucks really do truck stuff and the engines really do engine stuff. And we're blessed to have the appropriate staffing to do that. So having seen both worlds and understanding um, that coordination between the two, whether it's a uh, a good fire attack with some uh, very good timely vertical ventilation and how they complement one another. Um, that, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of where I land. I think everything is very important, whether it's the engine or the truck stuff. Um, but probably most people would see me more as an engine guy because that's probably what I spend more of my time discussing and more of my time um, when I'm training other firefighters. That makes sense. Yeah, I think probably what you're best known for is the high-rise work that you've done. Can you talk a little bit about how you got interested in high-rise, end up writing the book and teaching on that? You know, once again, probably the, the greatest influence on me was probably my father, Pat McGrail. And uh, 
my dad was always a downtown Denver firefighter from the beginning of his career to the end of his career. And um, at, at that point in time in my life as a kid growing up, you know, downtown had high-rise buildings, not, not near the number of high-rise buildings they have today, but they had high-rise buildings. And I remember him and, and his crew would climb stairs with hose packs at the tallest building in the city at that time. And it was a 44-story building that's still down there called Brooks Towers. It's a residential high-rise, but they would climb stairs. And I just found it fascinating. And I thought, okay, you know, and to this day, Grant, I, I'll take a dumpster fire. Give me a dumpster fire, a car fire, house fire, whatever kind of fire it is. Uh, I, I'm happy to be involved with it. But the high-rise thing was always very intriguing to me and very interesting because I'm thinking, you know, uh, even early on when I really didn't have a whole lot of understanding about high-rise operations, um, intuitively, it was just clear that, geez, these are these are bigger buildings that are out of reach of streams, out of reach of ladders, so on and so forth, many more complications. So I became very interested in that and, and started with watching my dad. And then as I became a firefighter, I got to be a firefighter inner city and downtown and start actually going to some high-rise fires. Probably the big catalyst for me, Grant, is as a firefighter on Rescue One, the date was October 31st of 1991, Halloween 1991. Uh, we went to a high-rise fire in a place called the Polo Club Condominiums. It's uh, south-southeast Denver. And a uh, very complicated fire, uh, building with an atrium, residential high-rise, unsprinklered. But uh, the fire department was a condo of 750 square feet. And um, I didn't understand or even... It wasn't even on my radar, the concept of wind-driven fire and pressure differentials and different things like that. But when we came into the lobby of that building uh, and uh, we were added, when it came in as an automatic alarm, companies got there, they had a fire, upgraded to a full assignment, ended up being a, a third alarm plus several specials. But when we walked into the lobby, Incident Commander Chief Miller told us he needed a backup line on the fire floor, so that was our assignment. We wrapped some two and a half off engine 21 headed up. But when we came into the lobby, there was blue flame coming out of uh, apartment 702. And once again, it was, if, you, if you've been to like an embassy suites with the atrium style inside, you could look up and what is basically the public hallway or the seventh floor, there's blue flame blowing out into the atrium. And my knowledge and experience at the time with nine years on the job was, Jesus, is there a natural gas thing going on there? What's going on? Well, it was just a pure wind-driven fire. And I didn't realize that. But uh, initial hand line, uh, we added our two and a half to it. Um, there was a second two and a half added to it. So three hand lines to the door to the apartment, and we couldn't even get into the apartment. And uh, we were on in our air cylinders at the time on Rescue One, but it seemed like forever. And my acting lieutenant that day was a guy named Joe Sipri, and he said, we need to breach the wall in 704, get some water on this, and try and simmer it down. And that's, that's how we finally had success. But what drove, um, what, what, what was really driven home for me was there were four hand lines, three of them were two and a halfs, to control 750 square feet of fire in a residential high rise. And everything in that apartment was incinerated. Literally the refrigerator, or what we came to know or uh, find out was the refrigerator was a silver molten square on the floor there. But uh, a couple of things for me, Grant, that fire, one of them was we're on the seventh floor. We made several turns and it's, you know, you know, any, all the firefighters listening have been in fires. The smoke humbles us. It's pitch dark. Uh, 
I thought to myself, and, and we're not supposed to show fear and we're not supposed to feel fear, but the real reality is we're human beings. I just remember thinking to myself, I'm a long way from being okay in terms of, you know, the, the standard issue fire we go to in a house or whatever, where Grant and I are doing a primary search and about five feet back is a window. And we could take that window and we'd be out on the Bravo side at ground level and, and probably wouldn't even turn an ankle doing it. I just remember I'm on the seventh floor. We made several term, turns getting to where we're at here right now. SCBA, please don't fail me now because I'm a long way from being okay. Everything worked out, so on and so forth. But uh, when it was all said and done, for me, I was like, what a complicated operation that is. Uh, many, many factors I'm not even aware of. And I realized, as I say, you don't know what you don't know. Well, I learned that day there was a whole lot I didn't know about high-rise firefighting because that was probably my first most significant high-rise fire. And that just stimulated, uh, I, I wrote an article about the particular fire, which was published in Fire Engineering, and that just kind of stimulated more motivation for me to learn as much as I can about high-rise firefighting and so forth. And as time went on, uh, in the process of researching it, I was kind of blown away by the fact that the, the most recent high-rise book, and this was, uh, you know, uh, uh, the 90s, early 90s, but the most recent high-rise book was O'Hagan's 70s vintage high-rise book out of New York. And as I got closer to to thinking, geez, there needs to be another book. I, I didn't think I was the one that should be writing it, but I reached out to Chief Vincent Dunn, who I think is the high-rise expert in the fire service, and I said, are you planning on doing a book? I don't want to be stepping on any toes here or anything like that. He gave me his blessing and says, no, go for it. And if I can help you in any way, let me know. So the, the book is kind of a compilation of my own experience, Grant, the vicarious experience from other firefighters like yourself, Chief Dunn, and then a whole bunch of research and, and where you delve into like the NFPA 14 and find out, geez, what, what are standpipes really, you know, what's really going on with standpipes? What are these PRVs? How's it going to affect us? What are the critical components of weapon selection? And then real quick, uh, the other thing in 1991 that happened that affected me with regard to high-rise fires was the February 1991 fire at One Meridian Plaza in Philadelphia. And when preliminary and uh, final information started coming out about that fire, uh, you and I heard this thing about PRVs. And for me as a, a, a nine-year firefighter in the fire service, what are PRVs? What does PRV even stand for? Do we have PRVs in Denver? Uh, are they properly set? Are they not properly set? So on and so forth. Well, that opened up a whole bunch more uh, opportunity for learning and understanding. And, and to this day now, I, I understand, yes, there are PRVs in Denver. There's tens of thousands of PRVs in Denver of, of wide variety of different types. And, uh, uh, you don't know if they're operating properly until you hook up and flow out of it. And most of them have never been flowed out of it. But One Meridian Plaza and then Polo Club Condos High Rise Fire in Denver in 1991 were really huge springboards for me where it, it moved from just being something I was fascinated with, watching my dad and being a young firefighter myself in downtown Denver to where, geez, there's a whole lot going on here that I don't understand. I want to try and figure it out. And uh, I don't consider myself an expert in high-rise firefighting, just a very uh, proactive student of high-rise firefighting. And uh, I'm still learning stuff to this day about high-rise stuff. And, and the book was a lot of work, um, you know, but it's been very rewarding 
to have that out there. And it just, uh, the book, just like a lot of other high-rise stuff, this continues to open up more and more um, questions about high-rise operations. So a little bit of the background on where I got to where I am now with regard to high-rise. That's so funny. I think the misconception from a lot of people is when you hear somebody writing an article or write a book, it's because they think they're the experts. And I think it's actually the opposite. They were probably humbled at some point in their career, just want to find out more. And all that information never seems to be in one spot. You mentioned talking with Chief Dunn. What else, where else did you find information? Was it in your prior fire prevention bureau? Was it through the sprinkler companies? What kind of aided you in, in figuring out what you needed to include in that book? Well, I, I think I would answer that this way. Um, you know, what you and I are doing right now is one of the things, when I tell guys the difference between my dad's fire service career and my fire service career, um, and, and there's a wide variety of differences and that sort of thing, but um, I, I tell young firefighters that today's 21st century fire service is a very small fire service. And what I mean by that is when my dad was a firefighter, um, let's say in 65 or whatever, um, perhaps there was a firefighter, and he, he told me one time there was a firefighter from St. Louis came into Station 2 in downtown Denver, and they visited and, and so on and so forth. Those two firefighters, my father and this firefighter from St. Louis, perhaps they could develop a friendship, a relationship. Uh, they maybe would correspond via written letter, uh, possibly you know, maybe a couple times a year. Nobody would ever call somebody long distance back in the day because it would cost an arm and a leg to talk to somebody for 15 minutes long distance. And so it was a, it was a much larger fire service then. And uh, you didn't know other firefighters like we do today. Here I am having a conversation with a firefighter friend and colleague from Florida. You're at your home in Florida. I'm at my home in Denver. I wish I was with you at your home in Florida because it's nine degrees in Denver today, as I told you. But the point is, is that the other day you reached out to me about hose loads on Denver pumpers and you were able to reach out to me immediately and instantly via text. And we have text and we have email and FaceTime and certainly all the social media type components. What I'm getting at is probably for me in my development with high rise research for the book, that sort of thing, it was the, the immediate and easy access to firefighters all over the world, primarily North American firefighters and primarily firefighters in the United States, whether it was the late Andy Fredericks or, you know, Chief Ted Corporandi from, from San Francisco, yourself, whoever it is, you're able to reach out to guys immediately and ask them questions immediately. And, and that's that vicarious experience. And then, of course, um, with the social media and that sort of thing, you know instantly, geez, there was uh, there was a high-rise fire in Estero, Florida yesterday or wherever it happens to be. And you can reach out to somebody, tell me about what you had and what your operations were. So we're just, obviously we got to be careful because as you know, on the internet, um, there's good information on the internet. There's also information there that it's like you hope firefighters would never see because it's, it's ridiculous, some of it. But we have the ability to, to, gather so much quality information, vicarious experience information, knowledge from other firefighters. That was, that's what really helped the development. And I'm not even sure if I'm answering this question correctly for you, but that was a big part uh, of what got me and continues to get me to where I need to be as a firefighter is just the ability to communicate 
quickly with firefighters, great firefighters all over the fire service about what you have there and, and how did you deal with it? What, what kind of problems did you encounter? And uh, certainly late 90s for me, Grant, the, the FDIC thing, being invited by Andy Fredericks to be a part of that engine company standpipe or that engine company hands-on team. And then from that evolved the engine company standpipe uh, team with where Jerry Tracy and I were the co-lead instructors with that. He brought in his guys. I brought in my guys. To me, that's, it's, it's the relationship with other top shelf firefighters across the fire service. That's what to me has launched me forward and continues to launch me for, for, forward in our profession, whether it's high rise or whatever topic it happens to be. No, I agree. I think we're living in the greatest age because uh, if it weren't for social media and email and all that, I don't think I ever would have met you and, and so many other great firefighters. I really encourage people reach out to these subject matter experts. There's no point reinventing the wheel. Just start where they left off. Uh, I know we did that uh, with you. We had a, a mess of a high rise uh, situation for equipment. And I, I just thought, you know, let's bring you down and let's try to get us squared away. What do you see? What do you see as a big mistake or something that, that departments are missing right now in terms of high rise if they haven't looked at what they're actually trying to do? Well, you know, certainly a big focus is on that weapon selection and on the, the fire flow. And it, it continues to be a, a, a recurring mistake. However, I think we are so much further ahead now than we were 10, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, the weapon selection thing. I One of the things that, and I'm not even sure really how I stumbled across this thought, but I I try to help firefighters understand um, the concept of, of positive control. And when we go to a ground-based fire and we have our pumper and our engineer pump operator, our own hose, our own nozzles, a good municipal water system, which is all stuff that I have here in Denver, you can guarantee when you pull an inch and three-quarter pre-connect off of a Denver pumper, you can guarantee that if it's being properly pumped, you're going to get your 175 to 185 GPM, depending on the nozzle that the that, that captain has set up on that pumper. And you, you're guaranteed that because of that positive control, uh, the engineer, the uh, municipal water system, our own equipment, a good pumper, so on and so forth. I believe that you lose positive control when you hook up to a standpipe because there's a lot of things going on within a standpipe system that we probably don't know about in, until we find out about in the heat of battle. And so when we delve deeper into it, and we learn more about the requirements from NFPA 14. We realize that they're, they're, we, are, we are already kind of hamstrung a little bit in terms of the weapons we can successfully take in and operate with inside of a high-rise building. So the inch and a half is, is frightening. The inch and three-quarter is scary. Uh, many departments, especially in your state, are using the two-inch, which I believe is a, a huge step in the right direction. The standpipe's actually designed to accommodate two and a half. And to me, where I'm at today as a 21st century professional firefighter is it's really a combination of the two and a half and the two-inch that's the best place to be. But it's because we lose that positive control um, because there, there's many things with the standpipe, whether uh, poor design, closed valves, PRVs, whatever the case may be. So I think we're, once again, I think we've come a long way. We're better now than we were 10, 15, 20 years ago, but there's still 
there still are firefighters, some firefighters, even in my corner of the fire service, that they are, they are predicting or they're intuitively thinking uh, what I'm able to do with this particular weapon. And usually it's specifically the inch and three quarter. What I'm able to do with that at a ground-based operation with positive control from the pumper, I'm going to be able to do that same thing on the 20th floor of a high-rise building. And that's just not the case in, in most situations. So weapon selection and, and flow and really understanding. And, and as you and I know from our um, stuff down at uh, HROC with Chief Kurt Isaacson and the good work that the Alcart people have done, know your flow, know your flow. And I, that's what I encourage guys to do. Okay, I understand this idea about maneuverability and that's our workhorse weapon is inch and three quarter, but uh, study one Meridian Plaza because that was my first understanding of it. They've, they were not able to get the flows that they would expect out of that weapon, not even close, because of the lack of positive control that you have with a standpipe system. And, and a side note to that too, Grant, I had a small fire on my last work shift at a uh, standpipe equipped building. But the it was a five-story standpipe equipped building. The operation was such that it would be best for the engine company to come off of a city hydrant and hand stretch because it was a second floor apartment, uh, pretty close to the stairwell, so on and so forth. So I always tell firefighters as well, if you can avoid using a standpipe, it's not a bad thing to, to choose because you maintain positive control. So I would say one of the big mistakes though is this, this I, I, I don't know whether I call it a reliance or an assumption that the tools we're using for ground-based operations are tools that will work in the same manner and produce the same flow for a high-rise operation on the 20th floor. And that's not always the case. That's funny you bring that up. As you were talking about positive control, I was thinking, as a next question, you're the, you're the chief of, of so many engine companies. What's your direction to those engine companies if primarily they've got, you know, some, some hotels seven floors and below? Uh, you know, are you having a position at the ends rather than, at lobby so that they can stretch if the, the fire's low? What kind of expectations do you have as a chief? What's that look like for you and in, in the companies you command? Well, there's, there's certainly there's uh, written guidelines within my organization and operating procedures. And, and generally speaking, uh, based on the guideline and the procedure, um, the first new engine company that would arrive at a standpipe quit building is going to go to the FDC. And they're good. that engineer is going to hook up to the FTC and the crew is going to head in with, with hose packs and so forth. What I'm doing with the engine companies that are in my district and, and uh, I have uh, six engine companies in my district uh, that, that uh, work on uh, within our team here in district three. And uh, I'm trying to educate them on the PRVs, the, the standpipe systems, and then, I'm trying to, to help those officers uh, understand that, that um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to fully support their decision if they choose not to use the standpipe. So, for example, the lieutenant that I talked to the other night at the, it was a very small fire that we had and it didn't require a handline. But I said, in, in this situation, um, you know, think about uh, not, think about bypassing the standpipe because once again, you're going to be able to get to this particular location with one of your pre-connects. You're going to maintain positive control and you could do that in this particular, I, I guess um, mostly grant trying to empower the officers under my command 
to, to feel comfortable to make a decision that might be outside of the so-called guideline. And, uh, and, I'm a, and I'm a guideline and procedural guy. There's some things like the use of elevators. I, I don't think there's ever a time we should take an elevator to a reported floor of alarm or a, a reported fire floor location. And there's some things that I believe that, that, that we should be very strict and consistent with. But in terms of this operation, I want those officers, once again, give them the empowerment that says, hey, if you bypass the standpipe and stretch off the pumper for a lower floor fire, um, second floor, third floor, absolutely below grade. That's the big ticket one. Nothing worse than than supplying a standpipe for a below grade fire in a sub-basement in a high-rise building in downtown Denver and then taking a line off of a standpipe, uh, a connection, that, that's very dangerous. Critical to have that umbilical cord from the pumper so people can get out. Um, but uh, I, I think it's mostly an issue of empowerment and supporting them. Hey, Here's some options for you to think about. Should you decide to bypass the standpipe and stretch from the pumper? I fully support that. Here's the reasons why. A big part of it is just educating them if they have not encountered that in their career and giving them some vicarious experience from me as to here's the times where this really worked out well and here's the reasons why. So big part of it is that empowerment and, and helping people have options. You know, that's a big part of it, helping them have options in terms of not getting hamstrung into one particular way of thinking, but having some options. Yeah, options based in in some facts. What about, so you've had a lot of high-rise experience, I'm sure, uh, firsthand and, and as you were doing your research. What's the number one thing we're screwing up or we're going to be surprised about on a high-rise fire that we don't even, we're not even thinking about? What are we missing? Well... Um, you've kind of answered the question for me uh, with your question, and it's with the word surprise. Um, as you know from your experience, and, and I'm, I'm certain that the majority, if not all, of the firefighters who listen to this will know from their own experience, uh, in my corner of the fire service, in your corner of the fire service, across the American fire service, um, we respond to a lot of high-rise buildings uh, on a daily basis, pretty regularly, on alarms in buildings that turn out to be something less than a fire. And uh, oftentimes a system malfunction, a steam scare, a smoke scare, whatever the case may be. And what I believe happens, and I think the biggest problem for us, the biggest surprise that we have in the fire service in terms of high-rise fires, is we get to a high-rise building and there's a fire. And there's firefighters uh, I, maybe I'm using the term loosely there um, because I think if you're truly a dedicated, passionate firefighter and you're doing your job regularly, you're not going to be surprised when you come around a corner and you have a fire at a building you've been to a hundred times before and it turned out to be nothing. And it's a difficult thing. And it's, it's a difficult thing I ask of firefighters that work with me. And that is being prepared and fully expecting a fire every time we go out the door even though we understand that the vast majority of times it's not going to turn out to be something, but firefighters will get to that building where they've had an automatic alarm and nuisance alarms many, many times before. And then it turns out to be the real deal. And everybody's like, geez, uh, that's the last thing I expected is for a fire to happen in this building. Well, you're a professional firefighter and the word fire is in the middle name uh, of who we are. Uh, I don't care if it's been six months or a year since your last fire, you got to be prepared for one today. So that that's the biggest surprise is just when we find a fire at a building that 
we didn't expect there to be a fire. Great case study uh, from 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 uh, a great place. Uh, Memphis, Tennessee is the Regis Towers fire. Um, where it's a building with tremendous nuisance alarms. They had nuisance alarms one after another after another. And the night of that fire that happened in the 90s, um, two civilians and two firefighters got killed. Um, so we, it's, it's really important to me that we maintain that, uh, you, talk, you and I talked about a little bit in the pre-show, that, that, uh, that mindset of bringing your A-game every time. Now, in terms of kind of fine-tuning that answer as to, um, you know, what are the surprises? I would go back to what I said previously, is I think that some firefighters be, be, become surprised when they find out how little pressure they're getting out of a hose valve outlet at a building. Because one of the things that I've, I've really latched onto over the course certainly of the last 20, 25 years is every time we do get a high rise fire or a standpipe operation, I wanna know what's the valve really doing? This is our opportunity. It, more than likely it's a valve that has never been flow tested. Well, it's being flow tested today at this real fire. What, it's really do, what is it really doing? And Grant, in, in the last 25 years of really looking at this closely, I am yet to go to a high-rise fire in my corner of the fire service where a hose valve outlet is producing a three-digit figure. It's, it's always been a two-digit figure, and it's usually something in the neighborhood of 50 is how much is coming out of there. And once again, that points to that weapon of a higher volume, lower pressure in the two and a half for the standpipe operation. And then sometimes coupled with a two inch nozzle section is really, to me, a very good recipe for success. But item one, surprised that a fire occurred. We should never be surprised by that. And item two, surprised that the pressure at the hose valve outlet is as low as it is. Th those are the two, two big ones right there. And, and I think ultimately for most firefighters, if they're being honest with themselves, they say at the end of a high rise event, surprised at how complicated it was, the logistics the exposure concerns, so on and so forth, the number of firefighters really needed to successfully do that. You know, Chief Dunn, in, in conversations with him, and I, 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 just, I think the world of Chief Dunn, uh, his experience, his background, his passion for the fire service, the number of firefighter lives he saved vicariously, if you will, or, or indirectly through his writings and his teaching, so on and so forth. He one time in a seminar that I attended of his said that, uh, his model, and once again, we're talking about FDNY, which uh, is essentially five fire departments that became one fire department over the course of time uh, when all of the boroughs came together to be, become one fire department. So they have these tremendous resources, we all know that, and tremendous staffing on apparatus. But he said, the, the, one of the goals should be to try and get 100 firefighters into the building and operating within the first 15 minutes of a high-rise fire. That's a, that's a very tall order for most fire departments across the fire service, which is why we have to have those uh, pre-developed automatic aid and, and mutual aid agreements, so on and so forth. But the, the, the lesson for all firefighters is that the number of firefighters really needed to operate and complete the things that we need to have done at a high-rise fire. There, there's a need for three RIT teams. RIT team on the floor below, a second RIT team on the floor below for companies operating above, and then a RIT team in the lobby. So three RIT teams at a minimum. So um, I, I guess I'd leave it there, Grant. The, the, don't be surprised that you have a fire. Don't be surprised at how low the pressure is coming out of the standpipe. And don't be surprised at how many firefighters you need to safely and successfully 
uh, combat and operate and, and bring under control a high-rise fire. I know as you helped us redo our hose packs, we moved away from the gated Y to going straight in uh, to the standpipe and we're using two inch hose and all of our buildings are post 1993 for anyone wondering why we chose that. But two questions that came up that made me realize how little people understand what's going on with, with high rise operations and fire pumps and whatnot. Maybe you could touch on them. Once we took away the Y from the floor below, the big question was, where's the backup line coming from? The second one was, if you've got a fire pump, what is the point or at what sequence is the engine hitting on the FDC? Um, can you talk about those two? The, the firefighters that are listening to your podcast are obviously going to be engaged top shelf firefighters. Many of them are going to know the name Dennis Laguerre, the retired captain out of Oakland. And, and Dennis is crazy, crazy, crazy intelligent. I can... I can only have short conversations with them before I have to go somewhere and lay down, get in a fetal position and suck my thumb and try and figure out what the heck it was he was saying because he's crazy smart. But Dennis gives a tremendous class on the gated Y and the gated Y for ground-based operations, for high-rise operations, and why you really shouldn't be doing that. And I always tell guys in, in terms of the gated Y, the, I, I'm not a proponent of the gated Y for ground-based or for high-rise operations. I think sometimes in the fire service, Many firefighters, fire officers, chief officers focus on two hand lines before they have one hand line in operation. Even for our ground-based operations, I go to a, a ground-based fire with engine companies in my district. To me, the second engine company really needs to focus their attention on making sure that first hand line is, is doing everything it needs to be doing before we get too crazy with the backup line. And backup line is critically important, but there's a competition thing as well. And in my corner of the fire service, competition is alive and well. And a little bit of competition is very healthy because it makes us stronger and better because we're trying to, to uh, uh, you know, be better than the other company, so on and so forth. But we need to know when competition stops and when that teamwork gets really critical for it to begin. So gated Y, I can't emphasize enough the importance of, of, of dropping that gated Y for a variety of reasons out of the high-rise ensemble. Uh, weight, um, focusing on two hand lines before one hand line, so on and so forth. Um, in terms of the backup line, we're trying to really be disciplined about whatever stairwell we start an attack out of. That becomes our fire attack stairwell. We maintain that as the fire attack stairwell and make every attempt possible to try and keep the other stairwell in a typical high-rise building uh, clear of smoke and heat so that we can maintain that as an evacuation stairwell. So in essence, backup hand line um, not going to be from the floor below, but for, from two floors below. Uh, going to need an extra 50 feet to get it in place. Um, but uh, from two floors below off of the same, same standpipe is the recommendation. Now, anytime you put two hand lines into a stairwell, it does become complicated. It becomes complicated, especially if they're both moving. I will tell you that the vast majority of high-rise fires I've gone to and my career on the DFT were controlled with one hand line before a backup line got placed in service but occasionally you need it. And the answer to that, in my mind's eye, is to hook up from two floors below. Now, um, there's many other various components to that, that that add to that operation, make it a little bit more more easy, so on and so forth. But essentially the answer is my, my recommendation, I should say, is the backup line coming from two floors below off of the same, same standpipe. In terms of the FDC and supplying the standpipe, um, the policy that I believe in and the policy that is used in my organization 
which, which I believe is correct, is we always hook up to an FTC. We always put water to it and we always pump it. Um, and the reason I believe that's important is because once again, then we have the control. Now you could have a, a modern building with a fire pump and the fire pump could be doing everything it needs to be doing. And, and it may be that companies get up there and get underway with fire pump water and successfully stop a fire before we complete our water supply hookup and, and, and hook into the building. But I believe let's put fire department water into the building. Let's control it ourselves with our pressure so we're no, we know what we're doing. And so my recommendation is that to always hook up, to always make it wet, to always put it in pump gear, and to always start pumping the system with, with our components. Um, now that's easier for me to say, easy for me to say, I think, than it might be practical for some fire departments because there could be fire departments that are arriving with staffing of three. And sometimes they take that engineer up with them. In my system, we're arriving with four, a minimum of four, and our first due engine engineer and our second due engine engineer are putting together that primary water supply into a building. So it's a little bit easier to do if you have the staffing to do it. Now, the other thing that comes up from time to time, you've heard over the years, and I used to say this myself, we'll hook up to the FTC so we can augment the fire pump. We now know from guys like Dennis Laguerre, uh, that it's the fire pump or it's us. Wh whichever one is at the higher pressure, that's the one that's pushing water into the building system. And uh, we need to know which one that is. And we also need to shut down the, the building's fire pump if we're actually putting water into the system. Otherwise, it's not, it's not pushing water anywhere. It's pumping and it's static and it's going to heat up and we might ruin a fire pump, the building's fire pump or our fire pump. So we, we need to know that. It's one or the other. I prefer that we're the ones putting water into the building uh, so that I know it's coming from us. It's our equipment. We do lose the positive control once we put it into the FTC, but that's no different from what's coming out of the fire pump into that riser. But I, my recommendation is that we're the ones that do it. Very nice. Couple words I keep hearing you mention, top shelf firefighter, nice guy, those types of things. I know you talk about that in your class. Uh, why don't you talk about that for a couple minutes? Under categories of yeah, categories of excellence, we we jokingly talk about that and and so forth. And uh, I, I should say we jokingly talk about it, but there, there is a reality to it. And uh, I the, the the type of people that I gravitate to are people like yourself, um, not only for professional reasons but for personal reasons as well. Some of the stuff we talked about in the pre-show, um, you know. Uh, you know, being a, a good firefighter, being a good man, being a good husband, being a good father, being a good brother, so on and so forth, all those sorts of things. But um, um, I always tell firefighters that the, the top shelf firefighter to me is the category two firefighter uh, on a scale of one to six. And the, the top shelf firefighter um, is the firefighter that is um, physically and mentally prepared and engaged and into the job. And uh, I, I just believe that firefighters that are into the job, and those are going to be the firefighters that are listening to this podcast after you publish it. I know that you're into the job. You know I'm into the job. Um, firefighters are really in any profession, someone who's into the job. I always tell guys, look at it from the standpoint of being a consumer. Um, when I go out to dinner, um, whoever's cooking my meal, I'd like them to be into the job. And I don't consider a short order cook to be a menial task. I don't consider 
a janitor in a building to be a menial task. Those are all important jobs. And I admire someone who is doing good hard work uh, to uh, make a make a wage so that they they can support and take care of their family. Um, but yeah, I, I, I want, want somebody to, when we fly on planes, Grant, I use this as an example in my classes a lot. I, I want a pilot that's into the job. So in case he has a bird strike, he can do a Chesley Sully Sullenberger and he can, you know, save the lives of 155 people by, by landing in the Hudson River. That's incredible. That's a guy that Chesley Sully Sullenberger was, and, and although he's retired now, still essentially is, a pilot who's into aviation. So the category two top shelf firefighter into the job, physically and mentally prepared, all those sorts of things, the, the kind of firefighter you want coming after you if you were in a jam in a fire building. And, you know, that category one, we, we, we jokingly, somewhat jokingly, somewhat seriously call it a, a, a badass. And it's just, we go to those fires sometimes and you see other guys do good work. I had an extrication the other night on my last work shift and it turned out to be one person was a fatality and the other person was transported. And I don't know if they became a fatality afterwards or not, but I was exhilarated just watching my companies from Tower 22 and Engine 22. They just did really good work, really good work with the extrication. It was kind of a complicated extrication. They had a a precautionary hand line out, charged on, so forth. Stuff that you can sometimes take for granted, but I, I just, uh, I love working with professionals and seeing people do professional work. The point is, those good firefighters that both you and I know, uh, sometimes you call them a badass just because they do such excellent work. And, and category one would be somebody who's a badass and they're perfect. Well, none of us are perfect all the time. So we jokingly say, I'd like to be a top shelf fire that firefighter that hovers into and out of badassery from time to time. That category three, we call it a, a good firefighter, and that's somebody that does their job, does their job consistently well. They may or may not be into the job, and th that's okay. Um, and then we get into the other categories, and one of them is certainly a nice guy, and that's the guy that you can't help but like him because he's a nice guy and he's a gentleman, so on and so forth, but um, he might not be described really as a firefighter. And the category five and six are, are not nice names and I won't use them in our podcast here, so forth. But they're, they're, they really fall into the category of people that don't care, um, people that are not staying physically and mentally prepared, people are, who are not only not into the job, but they're, they're the person around the kitchen table that's bitching about the job or complaining, and, and slowly but surely that can rub off onto other people and so on and so forth. And I don't gravitate towards people like that, and I, I don't like being around people like that. And every now and then you can rescue somebody from those categories and, and elevate them up based on mentoring and, and showing them the right way and putting them with the correct people. But uh, really, really do appreciate, admire, and love working with top shelf firefighters that are physically and mentally prepared and into the profession, really love the profession. And I always tell guys, I said, you know, when, we, when you're a consumer, whether you're flying on a plane, whether you're getting a meal, whether you have somebody doing some work for you at your house, geez, you want them to be into their profession as well. Uh, the person that is refinishing your hardwood floors at your house. I hope it's somebody that's into their profession, cares about the job they're doing, is gonna do the very best job they can for you. When we have top shelf firefighters out there, Grant, and, and you're one uh, of many that you and I know, when you have top shelf firefighters out there, what, what the citizen is getting is a fantastic service from somebody that is passionate about what they do, has a tremendous amount of 
compassion for the, the people that we're working for, those people are, they're getting their money's worth. And, and I think it's a fantastic thing. So um, I, I strive to be top shelf. And, uh, and there's people I'm sure that like me and many people who don't like me for whatever reason, so on and so forth, but I'm going to be a top shelf firefighter, try to be, and I'm going to certainly gravitate toward that same category of, of, of people, the top shelf firefighters. I feel exactly the same way. You're definitely top shelf, but you have a, a great way of explaining it. Let's talk briefly. It's something that's not talked about enough in the fire service is adver- adversity in your career. I think people probably look at you or look at some of those top shelf firefighters and said, oh, they've always gotten what they wanted. They've, you know, they get all the good assignments or they get to teach every place and they always get what they want when they go to the chiefs. Can you talk about uh, maybe a time when you've run into some adversity in your department and how you cannot slip from top shelf down that rung? Well, I, w- I would encourage the firefighters that are listening to this to, to go online and, and listen to my, uh, my keynote address that I did at FDIC a few years back. And um, I, I, when I was developing that, uh, that keynote, um, you know, I was trying, what am I going to talk about? What's going to be my theme? Uh, what do firefighters really want to hear? And um, at the time, I was talking with some firefighters from a uh, a, a large city fire department in, in the fire service. And, and they were facing a bunch of difficulty and adversity and they were getting, you know, beat up by some people. And these firefighters ended up writing an article and it was an article that talked about uh, firefighters being into the job as opposed to firefighters that come into the firehouse and they're, they're involved in something else for the day, whether it's their, their real job, which is their part-time job. Uh, I jokingly talk about uh, full-time real estate agents, part-time firefighters in my book. Um, these firefighters talked about guys that would, uh, you know, be busy uh, tying fishing flies together at the firehouse. But uh, if you were going to do a drill or something like that, they didn't want any part of it. But through across the fire service, um, I believe the minority in the fire service are the top shelf firefighters. Uh, the men and women who are physically and mentally prepared and into the job. And sometimes being that, you, you will even be criticized for being that. I had a, a lieutenant, and I use the word lieutenant and or firefighter very loosely when I described this individual, but as a brand new firefighter when I was on the Aurora Fire Department way back in the, the mid-80s. Uh, had a lieutenant that used to make fun of my fire engineering magazine. I'd bring it in and I'd be reading it. And he says, oh, I see you have your coloring book with you today, your, 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 your cartoon book. And, and, and I was at a point in time in my career where I wasn't going to say anything. I didn't really know what to say. I was surprised by it. Uh, what I'd say to him today would be quite a bit different than not saying anything at all back then. But it was very insulting. And over the course of time, seeing guys would, would criticize Hey, what'd you do last week? I went to FDIC. What's FDIC? Oh, it's the fire department instructors conference in Indianapolis. Why would you do that? Was the job pay, the, the, the job pay you overtime to do that? Why in the world would you, somebody just find it unbelievable that somebody would use their time off to learn how to become a better professional. So the point is brothers and sisters that are listening, if you're criticized for being into the job, I've been criticized for being into the job for 39 years by a segment of people. And, and yes, as, as you said, Grant, there, there have been times where I've faced adversity, adversity in my career, whether, uh, uh, whatever it happens to be, false narratives or this or that, or you get a transfer that you don't want or whatever the case may be, or 
you know, trying to push things through. I know that I, I talked to many firefighters who are trying to change their high rise operation in their fire department, wherever they happen to be. And uh, I have been working on um, upgrading and, and, and improving our high rise operation in my corner of the fire service at my organization since 1992. And the job's not done yet. Uh, so here we are 28 years into it and I've still got work to do. The point is, and as I said at my keynote at FDIC, don't give up. That's the main thing. Don't give up. And the other piece of the puzzle there, you're not alone. There, there's many great top shelf firefighters that are in this with you who are facing the same thing. Criticism, um, you know, being made fun of whatever the case may be because uh, they are into the job. Don't give up and don't, don't change what you're doing. Uh, once again, I gravitate toward people like you. And there's, there's many great human beings in the fire service, certainly, and many, many great people. I gravitate towards the people that are into the job, and those are the people that I find myself mentoring, the ones that care and that are into the job and so forth. Uh, we all face adversity. I have faced adversity. I'll face adversity again. Uh, the people that are listening uh, have and will face adversity. Grant, you have and you, you will again. But the main message is don't give up. Um, because the resilience is critical. Having the resilience to keep keep going and keep doing what you know is the right thing to do. Um, have that resilience, don't give up, and then remember you're not alone out there. Uh, there are great people that, that face ad adversity, and, and some of them big names in the fire service. I, I was fortunate to have a, a, a nice quality conversation with Chief Alan Brunacini at a FDIC uh, uh, board meeting in Tulsa. And I had no idea that he would, he would, uh, we, we, we would lose him and he would pass away, um, you know, a, a few months after that, uh, that board meeting. And I cherished that conversation I had with him that night because I was facing some adversity in my own career at the time. And I told him about that. And I, I got some real good positive affirmation from him as to what I did and what I was doing was the right thing and so forth. And he talked a little bit about some of the adversity that he faced. I mean, for goodness sake, he, he is thought of by many as being uh, kind of like the grandfather of the modern American fire service with stuff that he did and very much admire him and always will admire him and, and really enjoyed having that conversation with him. But for me, looking at him and, and really seeing him as a, as a big, very visible, uh, important, uh, highly respected uh, person in the fire service, it happened to him too. He, he faced adversity as well. We all will. Uh, don't give up. You're not alone. What you're doing is the right thing. What you're doing is the right thing. And, and I kind of also explain it to guys this way. That when you and I go to a work shift grant, which is a typical work shift for you, for me, for firefighters across the fire service, where, you know, we have the runs that we have. Um, maybe the EMS calls we went on were not for people that were really sick and they would have been fine whether we went or not. And maybe we go to some alarms and buildings that turn out to be something less than a fire. Maybe we don't have any true working fires that shift. Don't open the bale of the nozzle flow water. Maybe there's no, as guys say, cutters and fires is what the guys want. No extrications, whatever the case may be. Uh, those routine shifts where there was nothing really significant that happened that we'll talk about at our retirement party. Uh, I always go home very satisfied knowing that, you know what? Even on the stuff that was routine stuff that turned out to be something less than an emergency, less than a fire, we brought our egg game. Had it been a fire, we would have performed well. 
uh, we would have been able to quickly shift from third gear to fourth gear because our mindset was where it was so, so, supposed to be. So, you know, bringing that A game, the satisfaction that, yeah, okay, nothing really significant happened this shift, but if it would have, we'd have handled it and we'd have handled it like professionals because we we're prepared. So um, for your, your firefighters that are watching this, brothers and sisters, you're not alone. You're going to face adversity, have the resilience, um, have a thick skin, uh, and, and realize that you're not alone because it, it happens to all of us. And, uh, and then the last thing that I would say, Grant, is, is be grateful. Uh, be grateful that we have been given an opportunity to work in what you and I believe is the greatest profession in the world. Uh, you know, be grateful that we have that. And, uh, and uh, like I said at the beginning, I, I am grateful that uh, um, the job that I do is a job that I'm so passionate about that I love it so much that I haven't had to work a day in my life. And not to say that we don't work hard, it's just that we enjoy it tremendously. So resilience, um, don't give up, you're not alone. Yeah, even the Bible says we can expect that we're going to have some adversity and uh, we should rejoice in the opportunity for growth. I know the majority of my growth has happened when I'm in the middle of adversity. It's never when it's easy and they, everybody does what I want. As we, we, we kind of bring stuff to a close, you talk about a game. Let's talk about, if you would, complacency a little bit. In your keynote, you also talked about the birth of your son, Joseph. Would you be willing to talk about that to our listeners? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, um, my, my wife, Jean, and I considered Joseph to be a saint among us. He's just this, uh, he's just this wonder, wonderful human being that, that doesn't complain and through no fault of his own. Um, you know, there was a 17-minute period of complacency the night of his childbirth, um, and which has a um, put him in the position that he's in today, but he, he's just this, this tremendous guy. And, and for the firefighters listening, um, my son, Joseph, 17 years ago was born. Um, it was a, uh, uh, a, certainly a normal pregnancy. My wife did all the proper, uh, prenatal things. Uh, she's not a drinker. She's not a smoker and so on and so forth. So we went into the hospital with a healthy child, uh, at the end of a normal full-term pregnancy. And, uh, you know, unbeknownst to us, um, during Joseph's birth, um, he had what they referred to as a nuchal cord, where the cord was wrapped around his neck. Um, the doctor and the nurse that were that we were counting on to bring their A game that night, they didn't bring their A game. They slipped into human complacency, and I, I wish they wouldn't have. They certainly didn't do it intentionally. Uh, but they were human beings as we are firefighters and they, and they slipped into complacency because it was a doctor who delivered uh, hundreds, perhaps thousands of babies and had many, many normal uh, childbirths that he basically uh, attended at so on and so forth. Well, uh, they didn't recognize that Joseph was, was suffocating. And uh, it was only when a nurse in that outer room, we were in a birthing pod, she recognized on a monitor that Joseph was in asystole. And she came in and said, you need to put that mom on a pulse ox. They put my wife, Gina, on a pulse ox. And at that time, they realized what they were paying attention to in terms of uh, heart uh, monitoring, both audible and rhythm, was mom's heartbeat and not uh, Joseph's heartbeat. And that's when they realized that he was in a bad place. Uh, Joseph was delivered. He was uh, a very, very dark blue cyanotic, not breathing. I personally had to perform CPR on him before they could get a team in there to 
to start innovation procedures and so forth. That's how far behind they were. And we weren't, we were at a large Denver Metropolitan Hospital and our doctor was a, a doctor who was a Harvard graduate with a tremendous pedigree. Well, he slipped into pay, complacency that night and so did his, uh, his nurse assistant. And uh, when it was all said and done and after um, finding out what really happened, Joseph uh, suffered a severe hypoxia that lasted um, to a greater or lesser extent for 17 minutes. And in that 17 minutes, um, uh, he uh, suffered uh, very significant brain damage. And his diagnosis is cerebral palsy. It's on the very severe side. He is nonverbal. And what that basically means is after you have a child with cerebral palsy, you find out that uh, um, there are a tremendous amount of muscles that go into talking, to chewing food, different things like that. Joseph's nonverbal. He has a gastric feeding tube. That's how we have to feed him. He has what would be described as spastic quadriplegia, which he's able to move his arms and his legs, but he has no control over them. So um, he's a wonderful human being. He's, a, he's just a wonderful spirit. We believe that he's a saint among us, um, and uh, we're, we're very blessed to have him in our life. But uh, his mother was robbed of, um, you know, a quote, unquote, a healthy child that could do many things in life. Joseph was certainly robbed. His sister was robbed. And the reason it happened was because of preventable human complacency. And I don't lay awake at night thinking that I hate the doctor, hate the nurse, whatever, because they're human beings. What I translate that to, and I tried to in my keynote, and I tell firefighters when I train firefighters, is that we don't have a crystal ball that tells us of the runs that we go on in a given shift or over the course of a month or over the course of the year, which ones are going to be real and which ones aren't going to be real. Because, yeah, we, we go to runs that turn out to be false alarms. We go to runs that turn out to be system malfunctions in buildings. We go on EMS calls that turn out to be somebody that really just wanted us to pick up their remote control from the coffee table and give it to them in their hand. We, we do that. That's part of what goes on in the American Fire Service. We have to bring our A game and we have to go into every run we respond to as if uh, it was our family, as if it was our house. And, it is, and, and with the mindset that we're going to give our A game 110%. And then when we do have the real deal, whatever the case may be, there's no problem in our mindset. We don't have to shift gears from first to overdrive. We can smoothly shift from third to fourth gear and go into doing what we're doing. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I've experienced human complacency. Uh, and been on the receiving end of it in my personal life. Uh, I've seen human complacency in the fire service. Every one of us, even the top shelf firefighters, because we're human beings, we can drift into complacency. And so that's why if I'm working with you, Grant, and you're working with me, uh, or whoever that top shelf firefighter that is with you and that top shelf firefighter that's with, with me, if they see that you're a little bit sluggish in the morning or whatever, they'll, they'll give you a little nudge and as we would say, a little kick in the ass, say, hey, come on, Dave, step it up a little bit. You know, we're, we're professional firefighters today. As as John Salka said in one of his presentations I went to one time, you walk into that firehouse door, put your firefighter cap on and have that firefighter cap on for that full work shift. You're a firefighter today. You got to put everything else on the back burner and be a firefighter for, for that entire period of time. But uh, I think that if we fight complacency, and if we, we work together and boost one another up whenever somebody else is, is they're having a little bit of a sluggish day because once again, we're all human beings. I think we're going to uh, 
be much less likely to de deliver a blow of complacency or the results of complacency to somebody that's counting on us to perform, somebody that's paying our wages. But uh, my little man, Joseph, he's, he's upstairs right now and he's just a wonderful little guy. And uh, uh, I'd love to have him in my life. I wish he could talk because I'd like to know um, he, he has a computer talker and so forth, and he does some uh, high-tech type stuff to, to communicate with us. But I, I'd love him to be able to run and play and participate in all the things that uh, um, kids that don't have, um, you know, a physical disability are able to do. Uh, but we're very blessed to have him in our life. But uh, we certainly wish uh, that the doctor and the nurse uh, that were responsible for service delivery that night would have brought their A game because they didn't. They drifted into complacency, and, and uh, uh, it, it caused a lot of pain. There's no doubt about it. And my message to the firefighters is fight complacency. It's the most deadly disease in the American fire service. It's very contagious. Fight it. Fight it every single day. And the top-shelf firefighters that I gravitate to are firefighters that uh, um, rarely, rarely uh, do they let complacency take hold. And they fight it all the time, and they... They, they provide tremendous service delivery to the people that pay our, pay our wages. So that, that's the story there about uh, little Joseph. And, uh, and if he was able to talk, he would tell firefighters, hey, bring your A-game. Bring your A-game. People are counting on you to bring your A-game. And we have no crystal ball as to know, hey, you know what? On, on our runs today, uh, Grant, our, our one, two, three, four, the first four runs, I'm not going to bring my A-game because those are going to be silly runs. Our fifth run, though, the crystal ball tells me this is the real deal. So I'm going to bring my A game there. We don't have that crystal ball. Got to bring our A game every time and got to do it as top shelf professionals every time. So that's the message. Well, I appreciate you sharing that message with us. It, uh, I've heard it a bunch of times and it, it, it's more powerful each time I hear it. So I'm a newly promoted officer. You're my chief. Beyond complacency, what advice are you giving me if I'm working in your battalion or division? Well, um, you know, I think that this, the question can kind of be answered for the new officer, uh, for the question itself, but also for, for the supervisors and especially the chiefs. Um, you, you know, I, I have worked for people in my career where they, they never had a conversation with you, never told you what their expectations were. And, uh, but when you do something they didn't like, they're right in the middle of you. And I, I hate that. Communication is, is, is critically important for us. So item number one, make sure um, when you're in a position as a chief to give your expectations to that newly appointed company officer. For that company officer that I'm talking to right now, make sure you give your expectations to your crew so they know what you're all about, where you're coming from. And then it's got to go, you know, they, they have this thing out there now, Grant called a 360 evaluation where there's you, you really ideally you should be evaluated by the people that are working for you as well to really find out candidly what they think in terms of how you're doing. But the other thing for the supervisor down, whether it's the chief to the lieutenant, the lieutenant to his crew, whatever, ask them what their expectations are of you as well. And I would want to know that from that lieutenant. What are your expectations of me and so forth? Because I think it has to go both ways. My big message, and I, I actually pr produce a written document that I give to my company officers whenever I'm, I'm working with a new company officer, written document to tell them what my expectations are and, and specifics. And, and there are specific things that I have, whether it's don't be one of these people walking around on a fire ground with an unbuckled 
SCBA waist strap and then help them understand the reason why it's important to buckle that waist strap. But, um, and that just leads to, lends itself to the idea of complacency. If you're in smoke, I don't care if it's a little bit of burnt food smoke, we know enough about cancer today that we should be breathing clean air. You know, it always frustrated me, Grant, over the course of time where you see firefighters operating in a fire, and maybe it's not a, it's not a huge, bushy, take a couple of breaths and it's gonna sear your lungs type thing, but it's smoke nevertheless. And they're walking around in an SCBA. They've done all the work of carrying that SCBA throughout the operation, but they never put their face piece on and, 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 and received any of the benefit of carrying the equipment around. So uh, I, there are specific things that I talk about. I talk about the disciplined elevator use for high-rise operations. We should never take an elevator to reported fire floor floor warm. I talk about weapon selection. I talk about apparatus placement. I talk about... Uh, uh, things like that. And then once again, give empowerment to those officers to make those decisions as well. Uh, I had a, a couple of firefighters from a truck company the other night that had to force a door for what turned out to be a burnt food fire. Uh, they could see a guy through the window that was not responding. He was on the uh, on the, the couch and he was essentially unconscious, probably due to the inebriation, but also potentially due to the smoke. They forced his door, they got him out, so on and so forth. And of course, he was livid that we forced his door. Well, um, these are guys that had not worked with me previously. He says, hey, uh, uh, we're going to go ahead and force the door if that's all right. Well, I had a conversation with them later. I said, you're in the building. You need to force the door. You force the door. And I support whatever your decision is. If you don't think it's appropriate to force the door, then don't force the door. But I support your position, your, your, your decision on whatever that is. I have to empower those officers to make decisions, but there has to be that conversation ahead of time. Hey, here's my expectations. And like I say, I give a written document to my officers to where, take a look at this. If you have any questions, let me know. Uh, tell me what your expectations of me are. But the big ticket one grant, once again, goes back to, 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 to caring, you know, care about the job we do. Um, you, you can't make somebody be passionate about the profession. Um, you can't make somebody be top shelf. You can't make somebody be into the job. Oftentimes, if you set that example, it's going to rub off on them over the course of time. But the main thing is care about the job we're doing here. Bring your A game every time. Uh, fight the human complacency like crazy. Um, my expectations when, when you roll around the corner at one of my fires is, is that you're, you're a paid professional firefighter. We're getting a good wage and a very good benefit package to, to uh, provide uh, an exceptionally high service delivery level to the people that are paying our wages, so on and so forth. And, and that's my big expectation, and that's the conversation I have with them. And then certainly also part of that conversation is none of us are perfect. And to that new company officer telling them, you're, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to make mistakes. Um, try not to make the same mistake. Um, but, but you're, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, it's not perfect. As Chief Brunacini said one time, the, the smartest guy at any fire is the one that gets there last because they have all the information now. And there's, there's one group that's actually smarter than that. That's the ones that actually do the post-incident analysis because they, they have all of the answers. When that first two company officer comes around the corner, they've got uh, very few of the answers. They're dealing with, with uh, partial information, sometimes false information, so on and so forth. And they got to make decisions based on that. And we've got to support them based on this company officer made this decision at the beginning. As it turned out, it wasn't the right decision, but he made it based on the information he knew at the time. 
And uh, we got to give them the benefit of the doubt. We have to support them. We have to let them know that, yeah, uh, there is uh, there is growth with failure when you make some mistakes. But uh, one thing we have control over is we have control over our attitude and bringing that A game and caring and being compassionate um, for the people that we serve and so forth. We have control over that. So uh, more than anything else, the, the initial conversation and then the ongoing conversation. I, I make it to every firehouse in my district, every shift grant, and, and I, I rotate my, my lunch schedule. I, I have it on a written thing for me where on this day I'm eating lunch at station 22, on this day I'm eating lunch at station 16, this day I'm eating lunch at station 24, just so you can get out and really just have kind of a relaxed conversation with guy and let them initiate the conversation. You know, hey, Chief, what do you think about this? And sometimes that just brings into a conversation. They get to know you better. You get to know them better. And I think ultimately they see that you care. And if you care, I think that they'll care. So communication, lots of lots of ongoing communication with them. Hope that answers that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Outstanding. I could talk to you all day long, but uh, we're going to kind of wrap it up now. Um, but Chief McGraw, I definitely appreciate our friendship. The, your willingness to share in the fire service. I know you've been a big mentor to me, definitely making your impact in the, in the fire service. If guys want to get a hold of you, what's the easiest way for them to do that? You know, I, I, I have a website, McGrail Fire Ops. Uh, it's all one word, uh, McGrail Fire Ops. And then uh, probably the easiest way to get a hold of me would be my personal email address is my first initial D with my last name, McGrail, M-C-G-R-A-I-L, the word Denver in the letters FD as in fire department. It's my personal email address, dmcgraildenverfd at msn.com. It's probably the fastest way to get a hold of me. My website is a work in progress. I'm, a, I'm an older guy that is not the um, technology stuff, uh, Facebook, Instagram, that sort of thing is not as intuitive for me as it is for a lot of um, uh, younger, brighter firefighters in our fire service. But easiest way would be my email address. They could check out my website for some information and some resources there. But uh, happy to help guys out uh, with, with anything. Once again, I, if they care, I care about them for sure. And I'd also say too that uh, thank you for what you do, uh, especially with your search stuff, uh, the good hands-on training you're providing at FDIC watch a lot of your videos and the stuff you're producing. And, I, and I'll tell you what, the interesting thing in our fire service is when you gravitate to, toward guys, as you and I have gravitated toward one another, probably because of uh, being top shelf into the job, so on and so forth. And I, I'm flattered and honored that you would call me a mentor. The interesting thing is when people that believe uh, you are their mentor and you, you kind of become uh, or they kind of become one of your mentors as well. Cause as I watch stuff that you're doing, I'm like, this is fantastic stuff. And I'm learning stuff from it as well. This stuff goes full circle in the fire service and it's really cool. So thank you for what you do and for your commitment to our beloved fire service and your corner of the fire service. And, and thank you for being that guy, that guy that is a, you know, a good faithful husband, a great father, a great friend, so on and so forth. Because, um, Guys will ask about leadership sometimes, and, and I think that one of the key things about leadership is it's not just about what you do on the fire ground or while you're a firefighter. It's, it's what kind of person you are. It's, it's, it's how you treat your wife. Uh, it, it's, it's what kind of father you are. It's the type of friend you are and that sort of thing. So thank you for being that guy. Grant, and, and I'm flattered and honored you invite me today uh, to, to be a part of this. I, I hope that the firefighters that listen to it enjoy it and get something out of it. 
I hope so too. All right. Uh, well, thanks. And uh, until next time, this is a Journeyman Fire Podcast.